we have a lot to get to tonight, so I'm going to jump right in. Something we need to keep in mind as we read Job is that this book is written about and to the suffering. Though we don't know exactly when this book was primarily composed, it was most likely written during or just after returning from Israel's exile um, when they were forced, um, well, when they were conquered by Babylon and most of the people were forcefully removed from their land and forced to live essentially in captivity. The people endured unspeakable tragedy and were trying to make sense of what happened to them and how God could have allowed his people to endure such all-consuming suffering. The story of Job is an author and a people trying to sort out their pain and suffering. We have to keep this in mind, especially if we're not currently suffering when we read Job, because the things that suffering people say, the questions they ask, especially of God, the conclusions they come to, and the thoughts that they find comfort in can all be really off-putting and incredibly uncomfortable to those of us who aren't suffering. If you've endured tragedy or walked through it with someone who has, you know this. But still, so many of the things that Job says are surprising. They're jarring. They're gutting, especially to his friends, but also to us. They can feel abrasive. They can feel unnecessarily harsh. They can feel self-indulgent, like he's just wallowing in in self-pity. And they all feel dangerous. Because we're capable of saying and doing things we never imagined when tragedy has taken everything from us, when we feel like we have nothing left to lose. And when we encounter this in someone else, we often respond in ways that we think will be comforting to them, but are usually mostly about us comforting ourselves, helping us feel more stable in the wake of feeling destabilized by this other person's suffering. Because humans, as humans, we we are meaning makers. We want to make sense of the world. It's what we were built to do. We want to make sense of our suffering and the suffering of people we love. And sometimes, with even the best intentions, our desire to make sense of of the suffering around us, especially as it relates to God's role in that suffering, can do more damage than good. Making sense of tragedy has its time and place, but rather than that being our initial and default mode, the best thing that we can do for others is to be someone with whom they can be completely honest about how they're feeling, uh, about what they're enduring. This is something that we'll start to see take shape as we enter into this epic poem of Job that is the majority of the book of Job. Last week, I gave an introduction and overview of Job as a whole, and we went through um, the fable of Job, which is the first two chapters and the last 11 verses of the book of Job. If you haven't listened to that talk, please take time to go back and listen to that. It's going to make the rest of the series make a whole lot more sense. This week, we're getting into the epic poem, the beginning of the epic poem of Job, And we're going to cover the first cycle of speeches from chapters 3 through 14. We're not going to read all of that. Nowhere close. But you should read through that sometime this week. So what do I mean by the first cycle of speeches? Let me explain that real quick. The first three quarters of the epic poem of Job follow a consistent pattern that repeats in three distinct cycles. Well, the third and last cycle gets weird, but we'll get to that another week. Uh, One cycle consists of each of Job's friends making a speech and then Job responding to each of them. So each cycle looks like this. Friend one's speech and then Job's response. Friend two's speech, then Job's response. Friend three's speech and then Job's response. And then the next cycle starts when we get all the way back around to friend one making another speech. Make sense? We are looking at the very first cycle of these speeches tonight, the very beginning of this poem of Job, which is in chapter three. 
when we last left Job, um, remember that his three friends have just arrived after he has lost everything and has been stricken with boils and sores and um, is just in agony uh, and anguish. His three friends show up and they, they sit with him in his anguish in silence for seven days straight. Remember that these are good friends. These men all dropped what they were doing and traveled to see their friend who has just had unspeakable tragedy happen to him. All of his livestock is killed or, or robbed. Almost all of his um, employees are killed and all of his kids are killed. And then he's also stricken with disease and sickness. So they travel to try to take care of him, to try to make things better. In the story, these are exactly the people you'd want showing up when everything falls apart. Well, that is until they open their mouths, but it's here that we start the first cycle. I'm going to do just a quick overview of the entire thing, but again, go back and read chapters 3 through 14 this week to get the full force of these ping pong speeches between Job and his friends. So they've just been sitting there with Job. No one has said anything for a week. And finally, Job breaks the silence in chapter 3. All of chapter 3 is Job breaking the silence. And he basically says, damn the day I was born. Why on earth did God give me life if it was just going to wind up in me suffering like this? What's the point? I'd much rather have never lived at all than endure this pain than to suffer like I am. Very honest. And in response to that, to what Job has just said, his three friends make speeches. And Eliphaz essentially says, look, Job, you're a good dude. You're going to be fine. This didn't just happen out of nowhere, though. Like, this has to be your fault. And you should be thanking God for caring enough about you to correct you in this way. So thank God and then repent of whatever you did wrong. And God's going to fix all this and you'll be restored and be as good as new. Bildad, Job's second friend, if you can believe someone named their kid Bildad, says, look, man, God doesn't make mistakes. This isn't you uh, losing everything, your kids being killed, you being stricken with disease. This isn't the result of some paperwork being lost or mixed up. What happened to you isn't an accident. You clearly did something wrong. And listen, nobody's perfect. We get it. But stop denying it and just repent and God will restore you. And Zophar, his, Job's last friend, says, Job, you're not better than God. Stop spewing evil by saying you're innocent. You're obviously not, or this wouldn't have happened to you. Repent, and God will restore you. These three friends really think that they're being helpful. They're honestly trying to make Job feel better by reflecting what they think is truth back to him. They're just really misguided about it. Uh, these words from Job's friends reveal a faulty, though very popular theology that they all assume, including Job to some degree, they all assume to be true. Essentially, Job and his friends are wrestling with how to make sense of these three truths. One, God is all powerful. Two, God is completely good. And three, Job is a good man. Given the tragedy that has just taken place in Job's life, all three of these statements can't be true. And rather than believe that God is not all powerful or that God is not completely good, Job's friends decide and assume that that third truth that Job is a good man must not be true 
or at the very least, Job must have done something wrong. And if he'll just repent, God will restore him. God will restore everything that he's taken back to him. Job and his friends have a a transactional view of God and how he relates to us. They think if you do the right thing, God blesses you. If you do the wrong thing, God punishes you. This kind of theology is all over the Old Testament. and, And it's one that honestly you can back up with scripture, but it's ultimately faulty. It's ultimately bad theology. Uh, unfortunately, that doesn't prevent it um, from being, still being incredibly widespread and popular today, but that's another talk for another day. So his friends say these things to him and Job, between each of his friends' speeches, responds to them. But essentially he, he kind of repeats himself, but gets more, uh, he s- puts his foot down more and more each time. But basically he says to each of them, I have no interest in being restored. I'm way too heartbroken about this. But in theory, I agree with everything you guys are saying. I agree that God is in control and that he is completely good and just. And I really, but I really have no idea what I did wrong. I'm perfectly willing to accept that I did sin, but I have no idea what it is. So how can I repent of it if I don't know what I did? If God expects me to do that, I need him to tell me what I did wrong. I need God to tell me what, what sin I did if he expects me to honestly do something about it. That is the essence of this first cycle of speeches. Obviously, that's a massive oversimplification. There's a lot more depth, a lot more oomph, a lot more character and feeling and nuance in the actual text. But I wanted you to have an overall idea of what this first cycle is about before we go deeper into a part of it. Um, For the remainder of our time tonight, I want to look at and hone in on this first exchange uh, in this first cycle. So I want to focus in on the exchange between Eliphaz and Job. In Eliphaz's first speech, he says a lot of things, but I want to highlight a few of them from chapter five. Eliphaz says to Job, trouble doesn't come from nowhere. It's human. Mortals are born and bred for trouble. If I were in your shoes, Job, I'd go straight to God and throw myself on the mercy of God who stops evildoers in their tracks and who bounds and gags injustice. So what a blessing when God steps in and corrects you. Mind you, don't despise the discipline of Almighty God. True, he wounds, but he also dresses the wound. The same hand that hurts you heals you. From one disaster after another, he delivers you. No matter what the calamity, the evil can't touch you. In famine, he'll keep you from starving. In war, he'll keep you from being gutted by the sword. You'll be protected from vicious gossip and live fearless through any catastrophe. You'll shrug off disaster and famine and stroll fearlessly among wild animals. You'll be on good terms with rocks and mountains. That's a weird thing to say. Uh, Wild animals will be your very good friends. You'll know that your place on earth is safe. You'll look over your goods and find nothing amiss. You'll see your children grow up and your family lovely and lysome as orchard grass. You'll arrive at your grave with many good years, like sheaves of golden grain at harvest. This is the way things are, my word of honor, I promise. Take it to heart and you won't go wrong. Oh, okay. So, man, Eliphaz says, Job, don't act like this isn't your fault. If bad things have happened to you, it's because you did something wrong. So thank God that he cares enough about you to correct you. Repent and he'll restore everything to you. He even paints this picture of like, repent and you'll stroll hand in hand with wild animals through Uh, just meadows of daisies and there'll be sunshine and unicorns and rainbows. Like it's really that ridiculous. And on top of that, 
It's incredibly insensitive. If you're anything like me, you winced when we read Eliphaz talking about Job seeing his children grow up. What on earth is this guy talking about? He knows that all of Job's kids were just killed. So why is he saying this? This isn't the type of thing you say to someone who's just lost a child, let alone all of their children. Hey, don't worry. God will give you new kids if you, and you'll see them grow up. Wow, man, his whole speech just makes me want to scream. Dude, just shut up. Shut up, Eliphaz. You got a dumb name anyway. But what's funny or maybe what's sad is this is the kind of thing we say in response to suffering all the time, right? Turn back to God. Don't worry. God will heal you. God will restore you. At the very least, this is the kind of thing that you hear from people in the church all the time. Every time there's a national tragedy, a shooting, a natural disaster, like the fires and hurricanes that are happening right now, um, anytime there's something like some kind of attack, like 9-11, there's always someone who claims to be a Christian who very publicly says, this all happened because of fill-in-the-blank sin and the depravity of our nation, that God has allowed this to happen. But if we will just turn back to God and repent of that, he'll restore us. Now, faulty theology aside, people who are enduring tragedy don't need us to explain to them why their suffering makes sense or why it's perfectly justifiable for God to cause it or allow it to happen. They need us to feel their pain with them. They need us to listen to them. They need us to scream at the sky with them, to empathize with their anguish, not explain it away or offer empty platitudes that really only make us feel better. So this is what Eliphaz says to Job. We're going to look at what Job says back to him. But first, we need to remember something from earlier in the story uh, that I talked about last week. Remember that after Hasatan attacks Job the second time, when he um, basically Job is stricken with disease and his health is taken away from him. After everything else that's happened, he's lost everything. He's lost livestock. He's lost employees. He's lost his kids. And now he's lost his health. His wife comes to him and says, just curse God and die already. Basically, she's saying blasphemy against God so that he'll smite you, so that he'll kill you and put you out of your misery. She says, curse God and die. That's the last advice that Job has heard from anyone until Eliphaz speaks. And Eliphaz here essentially says the exact opposite thing to Job from his wife. He says, thank God and live. She says, curse God and die. And Job responds by saying, I want to die but I'm not going to lie. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but the fact that it does means, you know, it's true. Um, that's essentially what Job says back to Eliphaz. And I, we're going to get into that more. I want to focus specifically on what Job says in chapter six, verses eight through 10. This is one of those places in this book that occurs many different times that I alluded to last week. This is a place where we're really not sure what the meaning of what Job is saying here is. We're not sure what the intended meaning is because the Hebrew is ambiguous. It can mean, I'm paraphrasing, but it can mean that Job is saying, God, just let me die and I'll die in peace knowing that I didn't curse you. I didn't betray you. So kill me without me having to curse you. It can also mean, God, let me die and I'll die in peace knowing that I didn't withhold my words from you. I said what I meant and also didn't say anything I didn't mean. So I'll die in peace knowing that I was honest with God. Two pretty different things. God, just kill me without me having to curse you. Or God, let me die 
and I'll die in peace knowing that I was completely honest with you. I kind of think maybe the Hebrew is ambiguous on purpose. Like Job is saying both of these things. I won't blasphemy God like my wife is pushing me to do, but I also won't lie to God like Eliphaz seems to want me to do. Job is saying, I'm not going to pretend like I want to continue living after what's happened to me. I'm not going to pretend like I'm okay with what's happened to me and my family. I'm not going to pretend like all of this isn't super messed up. I'm definitely not going to thank God for it. And I'm certainly not going to pretend to repent from it when I don't even know what I'm repenting from. Harold Kushner, a Jewish rabbi and author, suggests that what Job is saying here essentially is um, to his friends, if God is who we think he is, completely good and dedicated to truth, then God will prefer my honest anger to your empty flattery. Ooh. God will prefer my honest anger to your empty flattery. Job, at least at this point, still believes that God is good. And he is so faithful to that belief that he refuses to compromise their relationship by betraying God through cursing him or, or trying to somehow dishonestly appease God by lying to him. I think this is one of the most important messages of this book of Job. We'll later see God vindicate or at least approve of Job's stance here, uh, that God prefers honest anger over empty flattery. God prefers honest relationship with us than us trying to control God by saying the right words, even if we can't possibly believe the words that we're saying, like repenting for something we didn't do. The question that's being danced around here between Eliphaz and Job is, is it ever acceptable to be angry at God? And according to Eliphaz and, and Job's friends, no, it's not. But the truth that's being communicated the answer that seems to be communicated through this book is not only is it acceptable, but it's one of the hallmarks of a deep and mature relationship with God. Think about it. What kind of relationship is one where you can't express anger? It's a shallow, superficial relationship. Can you really love someone wholeheartedly if you censor yourself with them? If you, if you fake it with them? If you withhold a part of yourself from them? No, obviously not. Harold Kushner uh, writes, we cannot love God with our heart, with all our heart and with all our soul. If we feel we have to censor our feelings to pretend love and gratitude when we don't feel them. If we are angry at the way life has treated us, but we feel we can't speak out against the unfairness of God's world, we are being emotionally dishonest in our prayers. Those are honest feelings. Why should we not be able to share them with God? Being angry at someone who matters to us, a parent, a lover, even God need not shatter a relationship. Anger can be a part of an honest relationship. Anger can be a part of an honest relationship. This took me a really long time to learn and was extremely uncomfortable for a long time. I was scared to ever let God know about the parts of me I didn't like, like my anger and my resentment, um, for fear of making him angry and disappointed in me. This is all largely due to the fact that um, I grew up terrified of my father. I was, and to some degree still am, an incredibly emotionally sensitive person. I was a very emotionally sensitive kid. I was highly empathetic and I had no handles on what that meant or, or how to try to control that at all. I just felt other people's emotions really intensely and didn't realize that to some degree that's a choice. So whenever my dad got angry, even if it wasn't at me, but especially if it was, I felt like he was deeply disappointed in me. 
even if it wasn't me that he was upset with, I still took it as me being a disappointment. And so I was scared of him all the time. I was scared of making him angry. And, and to cope with that, I developed a transactional relationship with him. I would do everything I could to avoid making him angry, even if it meant censoring parts of me or completely avoiding him altogether. Because if I didn't make him angry, then he was happy. And if he was happy, that meant I wasn't a disappointment. But if I made him angry, it meant that he would punish me or that I was a failure to him. I was so scared of him as a kid. He was my hero, but I was terrified of him. Fear creates anger. If you grow up afraid of someone, especially someone you love and someone who's supposed to be safe for you, you're going to develop anger for that person. I had dreams about putting my dad in his place by screaming at him at the top of my lungs or, or even attacking him and physically hurting him. I still have dreams about screaming at my dad. I'm, a, I'm like a kid in these dreams and I just scream at him. But I would never express any of the feelings of anger and resentment towards him. Um, I would never express that to him in real life. I always just shoved it down and tried to present a version of myself that I thought that would make him happy or at least wouldn't make him angry. And this affected every aspect of my life, including my relationship with God. I projected all of my dysfunctions with my dad onto God. Like Job's friends, I developed a transactional relationship with God, believing if I made him angry, he'd punish me. But if I made him happy, he'd bless me. So even with God, I tried to present a version of myself that he would like and, and wouldn't make him angry. I'd shove down what I actually felt and would instead act really pious. And I would say and do the right things, even if I couldn't possibly actually mean them or believe them. My relationship with God, like my relationship with my dad, was superficial. And I lived like this for years. And it wasn't until I was suffering when I had nothing left to lose and I just wanted to die, honestly. It was then that I finally learned to be honest with God and to not withhold my anger and my resentment that I felt at never living up to who I thought he wanted me to be, um, that I learned that who I really am, anger and dysfunctions and brokenness at all, that person, that person that I was trying so desperately to hide, that's the person that God loves. Not the person I'd created for him, but the person he created me to be. And that changed everything but it all started with me being willing to be honest. Now, I don't want to throw my dad under the bus. In many ways, he was a great dad. And as an adult, I can see that I was much more sensitive than my two brothers that came before me and the brother that came after me. Uh, my little sister's more like me, but um, yeah. Anyway, my dad yelling about or at my brothers didn't affect them at all the same way it affected me. And my dad didn't really realize that he couldn't treat us all the same until I was much older. Because the man has five kids. He was often, he and my mom were often just trying to keep all our heads above water. And now that I have a child of my own and another one on the way, I can't even imagine how much of a mind trip it must have been for him to have a kid like me that was so drastically more sensitive than his other kids. And I can't imagine how hard it is to try to navigate figuring out how to parent all of us differently. That's like a near impossible task. My dad and I are good now. There's been lots of healing, but again, that only started when I was finally able to voice and express all the built up anger and resentment I had towards him, which was the direct result of me being able to um, express and voice all of the built up anger and resentment I had toward God. 
my relationship became a whole lot more meaningful and real when anger became a part of it. Is anger a part of your relationship with God? Or do you withhold the parts of yourself that you think are displeasing from him? Are you honest with God? If not, please don't hear this as me um, saying you're a liar or calling you out for lying to God. That's, that's not what this is about. Rather, please hear this as an invitation to start being completely honest with God. Stop withholding parts of yourself in an attempt to be more pleasing to him. God made you. God's not surprised by the parts of you that you don't like. He's not ashamed of the parts of you that you think are, are messy or filthy or shameful. God can handle all of you, even the worst parts. He doesn't need you to create a more acceptable version of yourself. God's about honesty, not flattery. Psalm 51 says that God delights when truth reigns in our inmost being. That includes the truth about who we are and what we're thinking and feeling, the good and the bad alike. God is after you, all of you, true, authentic, honest you, not some watered down, more acceptable version of you. God is after the full-throated, no-holds-barred, unfiltered you. That's the person he created. That's the person he loves without condition. Somehow, even in the midst of tragedy that was so intense that he just wanted to die, Job knew this. Even when everyone and everything around him pushed him towards shallow superficiality, he refused anything less than an honest relationship with love itself. So what are you waiting for?